At the beginning of the sermon today, I want to give a little background on myself, and, and I hope that you'll be patient with me. In my preaching this year, I've done a series of series on various topics. We looked at sin, discipline, money, and guidance. And this is really in contrast to what is my normal pattern of expository preaching, that is going through the Bible, going through a book of the Bible verse by verse. Today, I want to return to expository preaching. But the question for me was, what book of the Bible would we study together? I've taught or preached through most of the books of the Bible, and I think it's sort of a reflection of the time I've spent here. Um, parenthetically, when we were at Shelton's, he introduced me at the beginning of the service. I, I preached at his church, and he introduced me as someone who had pastored in Los Angeles for a quarter of a century. And I just, just got this cold feeling. I, I realized... That's a long time. Uh, I had never thought of it in those terms. I had thought some time ago, actually before the beginning of this year, when we knew, found out that the Troxels and the Devils would be leaving, that I would go through the Gospels again. It was actually the Gospel of Mark is when I began preaching verse by verse uh, in the morning service. Uh, and then we did Luke, then we did Matthew. Uh, and then finally the Gospel of John, I thought that we would go through them again. But then I thought, what, a, what about the books that I've never taught before or preached through? Which ones of those should I do? Well, in the last series, the series on guidance, we saw that for many Christians today, the focus is on relational sensitivity, trying to somehow read God's mind or read the vibes from God rather than moral wisdom. And that moral wisdom is, in fact, to be the basis of our decision-making. We talked about wisdom a great deal, that wisdom is the ability or the skill to understand and apply the commandments of God. That is, to connect principle with application. Uh, and read it to us today, uh, from Luke's account of the Sermon on the Mount that the wise person is someone who hears his words and puts them into practice. And the foolish person is someone who hears his words but does not put them into practice. So that the fool is not someone who has not heard, they're simply someone who has not put them into practice. Wisdom is critical. It is so important. In the book of Proverbs, we read, Wisdom is supreme, therefore get wisdom. Though it costs all you have, get understanding. Wisdom is critical, and yet wisdom is so absent among God's people today. At least in my opinion. You know, I was talking uh, to someone uh, yesterday and then to John last night about this. That, um, some people would criticize various traditions, let's say the Catholic tradition, because when they get together to worship, the focus is on communion, on the Lord's Supper, and that it's become a ritual, and people would even say it's mindless ritual. But if you go to most Protestant churches uh, and evangelical churches, and even ours, uh, the focus, one would argue, is the sermon, that we do other things, and some people would even see them as preliminary, and that the main focus of our worship is the preaching of God's word. But there's a problem, and I think that where people might say, well, those Catholics, all they do is they go through these rituals, they don't even think about what they're doing. I would argue that many evangelicals go to church and they get good teaching, but they never put it into practice. And so what good is it? 
And this struck me. Last month, I spoke to a friend I hadn't spoken to in some time, and just in a general way, I would say that he is not living in conformity with what God teaches in the Bible. And this person knows what God teaches in the Bible because he used to teach the Bible. He used to be a pastor. He has since turned his back on that and is now living a life that I think leaves a lot to be desired. And I finally, in the midst of the conversation, worked up the courage and asked him, so are you going to church anywhere? He said, yes, I am. And he said, "Um, they have really good teaching. And I just thought for a moment, my whole the quarter century, if you wish, flashed before my eyes. Okay, you're going to a church that's got good preaching, good teaching, but you're living the way you are. Why is there not a connection? And I think among evangelicals, that's something we, we delight in good teaching and we talk about good teaching, but that's only half the equation. We have to then put it into practice. If we don't, then we're fools. We're foolish. The wise person hears the word of God and then puts it into practice. And, and so just convinced that wisdom is lacking in the church today and is something that we really, really need. We need to seek wisdom. It doesn't come naturally. It is a hard business to become wise. It's not merely an intellectual pursuit or exercise, as it is, I think, for many people. They go to church and good teaching, but it never enters their lives. It goes beyond knowing to the arena of doing. Wisdom is not something that we play around with, some abstract idea. It is life itself. Part of being a human being, we saw in the series on guidance, is making decisions. We can't escape it. If we say, well, I don't want to decide, we've already made a decision not to decide. And wisdom enables us to make the right decisions, either morally, that is, what is the morally correct thing to do in a situation, or in areas where there is not a right or a wrong. What school should I go to? What job should I take? All these different things. Wisdom enables us to make good decisions there. When we become followers of Christ, wisdom is something that enters in. It should The process of becoming wise should enter into our lives. I don't know if you remember, but I said that the first thing about becoming wise is that you have to be wise. That a foolish person, when they hear wise things, they don't see them as wise. It is only the wise person that hears wisdom and sees it as wisdom. It's interesting in the New Testament... When it describes repentance, repentance, we know that word, that's that's a very religious word for us. Well, back then, they didn't have religious words. They had to pick secular words and give them religious meanings, if you wish. And the word that they chose for repentance is the word metanoia, which means to change your mind, to change your thinking. It is a change of thinking. That when you repent, you used to do this, and you say, no, I will not do that any longer, and you turn around and you change the way you think, and you change the way you act. It's not merely our thinking, but our acting as well. Now that we are reconciled to God, we are the children of God, He is wise, we are to become wise as well. It is in Christ that fools become wise. He came to pay for our sins. And as Paul puts it so well in 1 Corinthians, he is for us 
the wisdom of God. But we need to be clear about one thing. Wisdom is not merely a New Testament commodity. It's not a commodity at all, but for the sake of shorthand. It's not simply something that people in the New Testament have. Because we saw in the Bible study, it pauses this week, that the shadow of Christ falls across the Old Testament. We find Christ in the Old Testament as well as we find him in the New Testament. Wisdom is incredibly important in the Old Testament. So much so that we have three books devoted to the subject of wisdom. Let me read you a quote about wisdom in the Old Testament. It is a thread which runs through the whole fabric of Scripture. Look at Genesis. The fall is a result of the desire to gain wisdom apart from God. That's Adam and Eve. They want to be wise. Genesis ends with the living image of the wise man of Proverbs, Joseph. Through discipline, modesty, knowledge, self-mastery, and the fear of God, he's been given noble form to his whole being. Before Pharaoh, he proves himself a shrewd counselor. Before his brothers, the man who can be silent, the man who can be the man who can forgive. So at the beginning of the Old Testament, we see that man falls into sin because we want to be wise apart from God. But Genesis ends with a man who is wise, not apart from God, but the way that God wants it to be. We find something else in the Old Testament, and I think this is important for us. Not only people who believe in God are wise. Okay. This is really important. We'll see in a minute that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Well, what if you have someone who knows nothing about God, who does not fear God, can he or she be wise? And the answer is they absolutely can. In 1 Kings, we're told about Solomon. Solomon's wisdom was greater than all the wisdom of the men of the East and greater than all the wisdom of Egypt. He was wiser than any other man, including Ethan the Ezraite, wiser than Heman, Chalcol, and Darda the sons of Marda. These are people who are not people of God. Solomon is seen as wiser than them. But they are wise. They do have wisdom. All humans are made in the image of God. We have certain abilities, certain faculties, certain gifts that God has given us. We live on the same planet. We share many of the same experiences. We are able to make the same observations. And therefore, if you get literature from the time of the Old Testament among the Egyptians, for example, you find that many things from the book of Proverbs matches what we find from the Egyptians. Why would we be surprised? We are not the only people who have wisdom. Okay? But there is a big difference. The difference is because they do not believe in the true God, they don't see the whole picture. They don't have a sense of ultimate meaning. For them, the universe is a closed system, cause and effect. They're able to observe certain things. If you act this way, this will be the result. They write these things down, and it's very similar to what we find in the book of Proverbs. When you read the Old Testament, for the most part, we find two things that we are supposed to do. That we are to believe what is written, and then secondly, we are to obey what is written. Believe and obey. And for most of the Old Testament, that's what we find. Except for the three books of wisdom. Job, Proverbs, and Ecclesiastes. These three books of wisdom. 
Each book is different in its method, in its approach, but all three have one purpose, and that is to call us to pursue wisdom. I have here in my notes that the wisdom books summon us to do four things. To think hard as well as humbly. Use your brains, but be humble. To keep our eyes open to observe the world around us. Thirdly, to use our conscience as well as common sense. And lastly, not to shrink away from the hard questions of life. I would argue that the wisdom books do not give us easy answers. I would argue that sometimes they don't give us answers at all. Instead, what they encourage us to do is to continue to ask questions. When you look at these three books, I don't know if you're familiar with them, but the book of Proverbs is a collection of proverbs, of various short sayings. Once you get to chapter 10, each verse is a proverb in and of itself. Ecclesiastes is a little different in that it's, we have some proverbs, but they're mainly longer reflections on various aspects of life. Job is uh, different from the other two in that it is a series of dialogues. Uh, Job has fallen on hard times. Three friends come to comfort him. Uh, they're not great comforters. They sort of just add to his misery. So they say something, he answers back, and you have this dialogue that goes back and forth. There is one fundamental assumption that undergirds all wisdom literature. If you do not accept this assumption, then these books really should mean nothing to you whatsoever because you're coming at them from a wrong premise. The fundamental assumption is this. God made the world. God is the creator. If you do not accept that premise, then the, as I said, I think these books will not be of great help to you. Because God made the world, there should be a sense of order and a sense of purpose and meaning to the world. He made the world, he gave it order, he gives it meaning, and he gives it purpose. In the book of Proverbs, when you go through it, there seems to be a real perception. Oh, this is the way things are in the world. Cause and effect. If you're wise, you'll be prosperous. If you're lazy, you'll be poor. If you're a fool, this is what will happen to you. Pride, and then you have a fall. It's a cause and effect type of relationship. In Ecclesiastes, we don't see that order whatsoever. In fact, if anything, it's chaos. It's confusion. Uh, and the teacher who writes the book of Ecclesiastes says, I don't get this. You have a, a wise man, you have a fool. They both end up dying, you bury them, they turn to dust. What's the difference? I don't, I don't get the meaning, the purpose, the order of life. In the book of Job, whatever meaning there is to life seems to be hidden. Of the three books, this is the one book that tells us about conversations that God has in heaven. Someone behind the curtain, if you wish. Let me talk briefly about these three books. And this is all introductory uh, to our beginning uh, a new series on a book in the Old Testament. The book of Proverbs, I think, of the three, is the most popular among modern Christians uh, because there's no context. You don't have to know the history. You don't have to know the culture. You don't have to know the religious practices. You know, like much of the Old Testament, you have to. And each proverb seems to stand on its own. You could sort of take a proverb and Live your life today based on this proverb. 
And so I think many people, when they read the book of Proverbs, they have a sense that take this proverb and just bring it in here to uh, July 14th, the year 2002, and this applies to me today. But there's a problem, and I don't think that that is the purpose or the function of the book of Proverbs. Each proverb, which comes from Solomon, is based on an experience or a series of experiences that he had, and he came to a certain conclusion. He observed something, and this was his conclusion. I think many people say, or think, that Solomon is saying, this is absolutely the way it is every time this happens. Not at all. And particularly in the beginning of Proverbs, you know, he says, you know, I went out and I saw a foolish man. And then I saw a woman calling him saying, come on, sleep with me. My husband's out of town. He was observing certain things. And then he came to certain conclusions. He is not saying this is the way it happens every time. And, and I think a lot of Christians get that sense that a proverb is absolutely true. This is absolutely the way it happens every time. The book of Proverbs is not meant as a set of ready-made rules for living. You know, this is the way you're supposed to live your life. I think I've told you before that years ago when my niece and nephew were quite small, uh, I, I have a hard time with discipline anyway, with children being disciplined because they're so wonderful. And, and my, my sister was, was disciplining her kids. And I thought rather severely. And I was like, you need, you know, lighten up. You know, you're going to hurt them. And she says, well, you know, the Bible says beat your child, they won't die. I'm like, well, they might. I mean, she had taken this verse from Proverbs and said, this is what the Bible says. You can beat your kids and they won't die. Well, you know what? Some kids do die from physical abuse. Don't take a verse and say, this is absolutely, absolutely the way it is every time. Her kids have turned out okay, by the way. Um, and I, I don't think she was overly harsh. I think I might be overly sensitive. But I use it merely as an illustration that sometimes people, modern Christians who don't want to think anyway, uh, they find a verse and say, okay, this is how I will live my life. If we had the time, we could spend more time on this. But the function of the book of Proverbs is not to give us rules by which to live our life. That is not its purpose. Its purpose is to show us how we, in our situations today, can gain wisdom. How that we, like Solomon, if you wish, can begin to write our own Proverbs. That as we observe, as we listen, as we pay attention, we begin to see certain things and we gain wisdom just as Solomon did. See, for Solomon, there was order to the universe. There was cause and effect. If you lived a particular way, you should expect to die a particular way. If you made good decisions, you'd have good results. If you made bad decisions, you'd have bad results. For Solomon, there was order in the world. I think if there's one lesson from the book of Proverbs that many Christians here today in the world need to learn, it is this. That not all of our knowledge comes from direct revelation. This is the word of God. And it tells us what we need to know. But more than that, it prepares us to continue to learn, to continue to grow, to become wise. I remember years ago we had a member here who I think had heard the saying from a preacher about such and such a Christian. <clears throat> they're so heavenly minded, they're no earthly good. 
They're so busy thinking about spiritual things that when it comes to practical, day-to-day things, they're awash. I think many Christians today, that's true of them. And in that sense, we are not wise. We need to be wise. The two other wisdom books are a reaction against the book of Proverbs. The book of Job is a rebellion against a rigid understanding, the understanding of cause and effect. When Job, uh, these terrible things happened to him, and I was listening to it this morning on tape. He had seven sons, uh, three daughters. He, had, he was one of the wealthiest men in the world. His cattle are taken away. And his, and his ten children are killed. And then he still trusts God, so he's afflicted with boils. Now, if you've ever had a boil, they're not pleasant. He had it from the top of his head down to the bottom of his feet. His friends come to visit him, and their conclusion, you must have done something bad. You do good things, you have good results. If you have bad results, you must have done something bad. And the book of Job tells us, That's not always the case. That we need to understand that there are things going on in the world that are even outside the world that we know nothing about that may in fact impact the way we live our lives. One of the problems with Job's comforters when we read what they have to say is that they're not all wrong. And in fact, for the most part, they're, they're right. It's just that they simply take something that was meant to be good and they make it absolute to say, this is the way it happens every time. Again, a parenthesis here. Uh, to me, this is one of the problems I find with the charismatic movement today. And uh, unfortunately, evangelicals have become just as rigid in fighting against them. That charismatics... In certain cases, they they were sick and they prayed to God and God healed them. No question. It was a miracle. God touched them. And then they say, and this is where they go wrong, this is what God wants to do for everyone who is sick. They took something good and made it absolute. Evangelicals in the meantime are sort of, you know, stay away from me. You know, we're so afraid of the supernatural that that we don't want to deal with them. And both sides have sort of become fossilized in their positions. The book of Job, I think, calls us to be alive and to ask questions and to understand that life is not always the way that we think it should be. By the way, the book of Proverbs is not as rigid as many people think that it is. The book of Proverbs recognizes that for all the planning you may do, For all the good stuff you may do, for all the wisdom you may have, things may not turn out the way that you want. So we read, uh, there is no wisdom, no insight, no plan that can, can succeed against the Lord. In other words, you may be wise, you may be making decisions, but if God wants something else, no matter how wise you are, no matter how well you plan, it's not going to happen. We also read, many are the plans in a man's heart, but it is the Lord's purpose that prevails. Circumstances in our hearts, outside of us, above us, for all our wisdom, can thwart our plans. So Proverbs isn't naive. Okay, 
But I think many people read Proverbs and say, this is the way it is all the time. Where the book of Proverbs might tell us, into each life a little rain may fall. In Job, we are accosted by a monsoon, by a hurricane, by a typhoon. It isn't simply a little cloud that goes across the the sky. The whole world collapses on Job. What about Ecclesiastes? Well, Ecclesiastes, I think, is even more rebellious than the book of Job is. In Job, because the reader gets to know about God and Satan in the conversation, we have a sense of hiddenness, that there is an order, but we don't always know about it. Well, in Ecclesiastes, the teacher basically says, meaningless, meaningless, the whole thing is just meaningless. I don't get it. That there's a confusion of order. Proverbs says cause and effect. Job says that's not sufficient. Ecclesiastes says forget not sufficient, that's impossible. Proverbs is somewhat optimistic, even though it is cautious. Ecclesiastes is gloomy and pessimistic. You see, not only is God incomprehensible, but then you throw into the mix human sinfulness and wickedness and oppression. And what seemed to be clear now makes no sense whatsoever. The book of Proverbs, I think in modern terms, could be seen as a series of sound bites. And when Job's friends come to visit him, they sort of throw sound bites at him. This is, this is what we've heard. This is the way it is. You must have done something horrible to be in this type of situation because we know you do good, it ends up good. You do bad, it ends up bad. You're bad in a bad situation. You must have done something horribly wicked. Ecclesiastes says, forget the sound bites. It just doesn't make sense. God is not predictable. Human beings are not predictable. And therefore, there seems to be much chaos and confusion in the world. I told you that there was a key assumption to the the wisdom books, and that is that God is the creator. But there is a key assumption that guides them, built on that foundation, and it is that the fear of the Lord, the creator, is the beginning of wisdom. Let me just read you some verses from Job 28. The fear of the Lord, that is wisdom, and to shun evil is understanding. Psalm 111. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All who follow his precepts have good understanding. Proverbs 9. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. Ecclesiastes. And this is Ecclesiastes. This is at the very end. He said, okay, this is the conclusion of the matter. Now all has been heard. Here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. Teacher says... I don't get it. It's chaotic. I can't make sense of it. But this is what I know. We are to fear God and keep his commandments. It is the fear of God which keeps the book of Proverbs from being smug. I got it figured out. If I do good, I'll end up with all this money. If I'm wise, this is what will happen to me. You better fear God because that may in fact not be what happens. It is the fear of God that keeps Ecclesiastes 
and all its disillusion from turning into despair. Because is, it is not a book of despair. Pessimism, may, maybe, but not despair. And it is the fear of God which keeps Job from mutiny against God. So these three books are invaluable in the pursuit of wisdom. So which of these three will we study in the coming weeks? I have decided with much fear and trembling to study the book of Job. It is a difficult book and there are certain problems that we will face as we go through this study. And I'd like to give them to you now to prepare you for our study. The first problem, the problem of Job's comforters. I mentioned earlier, it would be so much easier if everything that came out of their mouths was wrong. So we could say wrong, wrong, wrong. You, you, you just are completely wrong. The fact is much of what they say is correct. But they absolutize something that was not meant to be and then it becomes something wrong. I think it is possible for us to dismiss these comforters of Job too lightly to say they're unimportant. By the way, if they're so unimportant, why is it that in the New Testament, various writers, including Paul, quote Job's comforters in their writings? That is to say, something of what they said was valuable. So valuable that it's quoted again in the New Testament. They are not hypocrites who have come to gloat. The one thing I love about Job's comforters, we will see, is when they come and they see Job, they weep and they tear their clothes and they throw dirt on their head and they sit on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights and they don't say a word. They are so overwhelmed with grief. And I like the fact that they were quiet for seven days. And once they opened their mouths, then they got into trouble. Okay? But they didn't come to gloat. These were men who loved Job and they were, they were devastated at what had happened to their friend. They are not heretics who are giving us false doctrine. They are not fools who give us foolish arguments. What we find in the book of Job is that, like it or not, they are arrogant. I don't think they even are aware of it. That they are pontificating, that they're sitting there and they're saying, Job, we know what's what. And you don't realize it, but we know that you've done something wrong, and that's why God has done these things to you. They misrepresent God. They misrepresent Job. And the Lord willing, we will see this as we go along. One of the books that I purchased for the study is uh, its actually a facsimile, a reproduction of John Calvin's sermons on the book of Job. Calvin preached 159 sermons on the book of Job. I, I don't think I'll preach that many. Uh, I was going to ask Joel before church, but uh, there was a preacher, I forget his name, who preached on the book of Job for 42 years. And he died before he finished the book. Uh, I don't plan to do that. Uh, there is much here in this dialogue between Job and his comforters. But I like what Calvin says in his first sermon when he, he speaks on the book of Job. He says, We have also to note that in the whole dispute, Job maintains a good case and his adversary maintains a poor one. In other words, Job's right. His adversaries are wrong. 
Now there is more that Job maintaining a good case pleads it poorly, and the others bringing a poor case plead it well. When we have understood this, it will be to us as it were a key to open us the whole book. In other words, Job is right, but he's doing a really bad job of making the argument. And his comforters are wrong, but they're doing a splendid job of presenting their case. So much so that we have to sort of weed through and pull out that which is right and get rid of that which is wrong. So that's, that's one of the things as we go through Job, particularly verse by verse, uh, that will be difficult because we will be dealing with wrong teaching. And I'm sure you know this, but the Bible contains lies. That is, when people told a lie, the Bible records it. And just because it's in the Bible doesn't suddenly make it true. Okay? And just because it's in the book of Job doesn't mean that what these comforters say is true. The second thing is, when we look at the book of Job, many people today see it as a book about human suffering. So if you wanted to give Job another title, you would call it When, when Bad Things Happen to Good People. That's how a lot of people see the book of Job. We meet a man who is afflicted physically, emotionally. I mean, he loses his children, his possessions, his health. And then his friends come to help out. And all they do is make things worse. And then it seems that God doesn't even listen to him. That I mean, Job is in a, just in a desperate situation. And the suffering of Job is, I think, a central theme to this book. But this book was not written to tell us the answer to the problem of evil in the world or the answer to the problem of human suffering. Instead, the book asks questions about what it means to be wise and where one can find wisdom. The book of Job is to teach you and me how to be wise. The third thing, and I will close with this. The book of Job is often seen as a book that provides answers. I don't think it does. Well, it certainly didn't to Job. Because as we will see at the beginning, the reason that Job goes through all of these things is because uh, God says to Satan, have you considered Job? And Satan says, take away what he has and he will curse you. And so what happens to Job is because of this confrontation between Satan and God. Job is never told about this. He's never, this is not explained to him. So in that sense, the book of Job is not a series of answers for Job. I would argue that it's not even a series of answers for us. That the purpose of Job is not to provide answers, but to cause us to ask questions. to ask questions where we are right now. We who wish to honor and to serve God, there's nothing wrong with us asking questions. There's nothing pious about us saying, oh, just believe, just trust God. Don't worry about it. Don't ask questions. We can, with Job, engage with God and ask questions. We need to do it carefully and respectfully and reverently. But in the process, we can become wise. And I hope, it is my prayer, that as we go through the book of Job together, that we will learn wisdom, that we will become wise. If you listen to the book of Job on tape or on CD, it should take less than three hours. And I would encourage you to do that. I know that some of you have been listening through the Bible on tape. 
I don't know if you're like me, I've sort of slacked off recently, and this has sort of been an encouragement for me to pick it up again and to listen to the book of Job and, and really get a sense of, of the drama of it all. But hopefully as we go through it, to see the place of wisdom. That wisdom is not necessarily knowing all the answers. That sometimes wisdom is asking the right questions and not getting answers. Let's pray together. Our Father, today, given a lot of information and preparation, I pray that we would retain that which is important as we prepare as a congregation to go through the book of Job. May we learn from it. May we learn wisdom. May we not only listen and hear, but put into practice what we hear. I thank you that we could spend this time together. Again, we pray for Joel, Sig, and Mick as they travel, that you would keep them safe. May this be a profitable time for them together. And also for Mike, Jason, and Tim. Bring them back to us safely. May your grace and your spirit dismiss us as we leave this place today. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.